Welcome to this special episode of Life Solved. I'm Glenn Harris from the media team at the University of Portsmouth. In this podcast, we usually explore research that's taking place here and how it's changing lives. But this time we're asking questions and sharing perspectives. I'm talking to a few of our academics to gain their insight on current world events. Last month, Russian forces invaded Ukraine, an independent European state once part of the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. The resulting war has displaced more than 2 million people so far and continues to create a humanitarian crisis as strikes continue on the nation. Today, I'm asking our researchers to unpick the motivations and politics that have led to these events and to reflect upon what the coming weeks and months may hold. In the first part of this episode, I want to understand what's happening ideologically and politically right now. I'm joined by Dr Tom Smith, Academic Director of the Royal Air Force College and Principal Lecturer in International Relations here at Portsmouth. Dr Paul Flenley also joins us. Paul is a Senior Lecturer in International Relations and Politics. Paul, you've written recently about EU and Russian relations. What's at play here in terms of national identity and ideology for the nations involved in this conflict? Well, I think from the Russian point of view, there are a various number of themes going on. First of all, in terms of uh, Russian national identity, there's a tremendous sense of national grievance, which goes back to the 1990s, the sense of humiliation uh, as a result of a lack of, from their point of view, agreement on a pan-European security architecture at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and what they were faced with was NATO enlargement. I know, I know there's a lot of debate about why that occurred, but certainly from Yeltsin onwards, there was a sense of betrayal. Uh, so that underpins a lot of the anger. Uh, even now, when you look at Putin's speeches, a lot of the anger in his speeches. So that's, that's a key factor, an attack, if you like, on Russia's dignity. Also, there's a sense in which Putin is a kind of nationalist. He, increased his uh, emphasis on nationalism in the years after he came to power in 2000 and even more so when he came back in 2012. He's adopted this kind of conservative nationalist ideology. Part of that is challenging the West, what he sees as the kind of liberal utopia of the European Union, the West, and, and seeing Russia as a pole of conservatism. Part of that nationalism is a denial of the rights of Ukraine as an independent state. He sees, like most Russian nationalists, as Ukraine as part, really, of Russia. So, And you can see that he says it explicitly. Another part of Russia psychology are the attitudes of the group who came to power around Putin, what we call the Siloviki, the people with a security background. And you could say they have a common approach which is that the important thing is to restore the power of the Russian state. And they are what we call great powerists, in Russian. So they see Russia as a great power. For them, a great power has the right to influence, if not dominate, its neighborhood. When they see other powers coming into the neighborhood, then that challenges their view of Russia as a great power. And lastly, from the Russian kind of ideology point of view, you've always had in Russian history this sense of Russia under attack. Russia is surrounded by enemies, uh, and therefore it's important for Russia to get involved in the areas of instability on its neighbourhood, because if it doesn't do so, then others will. 
here we have the Ukraine trying to assert its independent national uh, identity against that kind of Russian nationalist narrative. Ukrainian historians particularly see the origins of Ukraine going back to the early so-called Russian state, Kiev Rus, which they say uh, shows that Ukraine does have a strong heritage, a strong history going back to medieval, the medieval Rus. At the end of the Soviet Union, you do see Ukrainian nationalism reassert itself, uh, and even Russian speakers voted for Ukrainian independence. And how has Putin's kind of leadership approached this opposition to Ukrainian nationalism and independence? Well, obviously, to deny the validity of the Ukrainian state, that Ukraine is really part of Russia, that Kiev Rus is the original Russian capital. And then if we go to the post-Soviet period, he argues that the 2004 Orange Revolution and even more so the revolution, the Euromaidan, which overthrew Yanukovych in 2014, was illegitimate. It was a Western-backed coup, and therefore the current Ukrainian leadership has no legitimacy. It's basically stuffed with neo-Nazis. He's used uh, various old Second War tropes, which appeal to the older generation in many ways. So it's very much to undermine and challenge the legitimacy of Ukraine. Are we seeing kind of protests or resistance to this? This is being presented not as a war, but as a special operation. And the aim from Putin's point of view and then the narrative is to defend Russian speakers, particularly in the eastern Ukraine. So you see uh, tales of relatives in Russia denying that their relatives in Ukraine are actually being attacked, that it's all lies. And he's closed down independent media. So it's very difficult for Russians to get access to alternative sources uh, of information. There have been protests, as you rightly say, but they're not big protests. People are fearful of their jobs. In the last year under Putin, Russia has become more and more of a dictatorship. It was authoritarian before, but a, a clever kind of authoritarianism. But now it's become a much cruder kind of totalitarian dictatorship with control of the media and little or no opportunity to express opposition. So in that context, what you see is a repression of uh, protest. And just to bring Tom in here, because you talked about there, um, about how the West is perhaps playing into Putin's hands in a narrative that he's given. So Tom, so what does this invasion mean for Russia's standing in its relation to European nations? Well, I would say its relations with the European nations is in the toilet right now. And that's probably been generous, somewhere deep in the sewer, perhaps, Glenn. Um, and that's not just the Europeans. It's going to be true with the Americans as well. A number of European nations are probably going to have to reapproach their approaches to energy, Germany in particular. I'm sure we've all been reading about recently and their um, agreements around the Nord Stream 2 pipeline are, are going to have to be seriously looked at, if not abandoned at this stage, which is going to then be refracted into internal politics within Germany and across the rest of the European Union around energy production, you know, probably a, a re-establishment of nuclear energy across the continent and just different approaches to energy. But this is going to have global implications. The energy markets are already, you know, completely in flux at the moment. It puts um, a lot of the stability of international relations under the microscope. So, you know, for those that don't know, oil you know, is sold 
through the US dollar. It's called the petrodollar system. This system's been under threat for, you know, it's always been under threat since it was ever established after the Second World War. But over the last five, ten years, China and Russia particularly spoken out against this. They say that this, you know, is completely unfair on the rest of the world. It gives America far too much hegemonic power and, and want to be able to sell effectively their own oil, in Russia's case, um, you know, using different currencies. And this would be a huge blow to to sort of US influence in the world and obviously now freezing out the Russians, particularly their oil, if that happens in the next few weeks, which is, you know, certainly been mooted by Biden's administration, this would put the petrodollar infrastructure of the global economy at, at real, real threat. So this has other ramifications way beyond so the Ukraine, Russia conflict and the sort of the, the, the neighbouring parties who we immediately think are, in, are uh, impacted by this. This is going to have global ramifications. I'm also thinking back to what Paul just talked about in terms of sort of Chinese relations as well and how that's going to be impacted. There's obviously been a very um, comparable narrative in Chinese politics for the past 10, 15 years, particularly under Xi as well, around Chinese nationalism and expansion of sort of Western interests in their backyard. And we see this being played out in the South China Sea. And so I think they'll, while China and Russia's international relations with the world aren't tethered per se, they are close observers of one another's actions. And, um, you know, one only has to think about the ramifications, say, for Taiwan in years to come, if the Americans are not prepared to intervene here physically. And this is only ever going to be an economic war because the economic war itself is going to be painful for many people. Mm. Are we almost looking at the start of, of another Iron Curtain, an East versus West divide, this kind of clash of ideologies? Maybe. I mean, I don't think we have the same ideological battle that we had back then. You know, the old communist versus capitalist underpinning, which was behind the Cold War, has, has retreated somewhat. I mean, you only have to look at sort of Russian life and the life of the oligarchs and how capitalistic that certainly is. And the economic element that I was just referring to is, a, is a really the crux of this, this conflict now. But we are going to see sort of nations being isolated now, you know, Russia being closed out of, you know, the SWIFT banking system, out of international relations more broadly. We're going to see something similar, you know, to what we've already had with like North Korea, with, with Iran to certain some degrees. And this is going to kind of freeze those nations out, not in the sort of East versus West, but we're going to pick on these nations to freeze them out of the system. It's going to put other nations in difficult spots who, um, you know, Middle Eastern countries who are also going to be leveraging their energy supply to us. So it's not going to look like the old Cold War, Glenn, to answer your question. It's going to look a little bit more modern and it's going to be a bit more fractious. There's going to be more players now. Okay. And to bring Paul back in here, so do you think the British and European governments were surprised that Russia actually took this step and invaded Ukraine? And kind of what is it what does it mean following in from what Tom was saying about what this means for kind of world geopolitics? Well, there's some suggestion that the uh, security intelligence services were warning of the possibility in the UK and the US, but generally speaking, I think everybody was taken unawares at the scale of the invasion. Although it has to be said that the scale of and the coordination of the West in terms of sanctions suggests there was a considerable more degree of preparedness than there was in the case of when Russia intervened previously in 2014. 
But in some senses, we had been lulled into a false sense of security. And maybe this was part of Putin's strategy. The Russians had been conducting massive military exercises for some time. When you look at 2008, invasion of Georgia, the seizure of Crimea, the unpredictability of Russia is part of their military tactics. I mean, they don't necessarily have the same kind of capability uh, as NATO, but they can, if you like, take NATO unawares. And I think what the other point to mention, I would say, Paul, is we've also, you know, would, would rather have not had to do anything. You know, we, we have put in minimal forces, you know, on that border of NATO, around the Baltic states for years into Poland. And we're not in a good economic position. The debt burden in Western countries across NATO countries is very high. Many of the NATO countries have not been putting in their sort of demanded 2% of defence spending. And this was all very open. You know, everybody knows that situation. That's very transparent to the likes of Putin who can call our bluff. And we would just, we don't have that sort of spare capital to to be allocating to this just to prevent him from doing it. And he has called our bluff. Yeah, and now and now, obviously, you're seeing an appetite for, to do nothing physically and only to you know run a sanctions war. Yeah, and should we have possibly, uh, in your opinion, should the UK and Europe been a bit more active, standing up to Russia earlier, for example, around the annexion of Crimea? Should we have done something earlier to prevent getting to this situation now? I think what what should have happened earlier, and this the signs go back to 2006 uh, and the gas crisis. We should we we'd had a long time to try to detach ourselves from dependence on Russian energy, not just 2014, but way back, you know, the Russo-Georgia War. So to some extent, we had not prepared for this in the long term. So we should have spent the last 10 years disengaging from reliance on Russian energy. Yeah, some of those sanctions could have started much earlier as well, based on... I mean, this is a war that's been going on for many years, you know, already, let's not forget that. And we have looked the other way you know, we know the the influence of oligarchs like Abramovich, who all of a sudden now we we've we've come to our senses and we think it's a problem. That obviously, I mean, a lot of this is of course of hindsight, Glenn. But nevertheless, that I mean we do need to draw some accountability. Obviously, the energy independence is a huge thing. You know, the decision to you know turn off nuclear reactors in Germany just at the end of last year now looks like a huge strategic mistake. And not just an environmental mistake as well, you know, to, to still be burning fossil fuels, whether they're coming from your own country or outside, is just a travesty. So there are things which we um, we need to be looking back at now and, you know, not just saying, well, isn't, you know, that's just hindsight. We need to be making decisions and, and, and pushing at open doors now in terms of our own energy mix, our security mix, our relationship with, with, with Arab countries in the Middle East now who are going to be plugging that gap and selling us their oil. It's not what about to to start to consider making the same mistakes there around the war in Yemen that the Saudis are prosecuting. You know, a lot there are a lot of parallels we need to learn here and, and move on with. And I don't really see these conversations happening in the public sphere yet. You know, politicians obviously don't want to talk about these things, but they really should be and they should be forced to. I think the other problem is, which Putin has guessed, is that really are we that committed to the defence of the Baltic states or Ukraine. I mean, certainly Ukraine meant more to Putin than it meant to the West. Putin was prepared to commit everything, as we've seen, jeopardise his whole kind of political and economic system for Ukraine. The West doesn't have that degree of commitment. We're not even prepared to give Ukraine uh, a definite promise of EU membership. And the problem will arise also with the Baltic states. You know, yeah. if it came to it, would we be prepared to go 
go to war with Russia to defend the Baltic states? We don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point, Bob, because I see a lot of people commenting that this will be the uh, the resurgence of NATO now. I'm actually the opposite. I'm very worried that NATO looks very hollow because what does NATO stand for? We Ukraine deserve all our help and, and interventions now, but we're, we're doing nothing. And yet to say if a tank, a Russian tank rolled into Lithuania, we would all of a sudden pony up and do something. That, that, that really doesn't make any sense to me. I think NATO is going to have to find a way out of this as an organisation pretty sharply. What are the possible outcomes of this situation? What, what perhaps a couple of the scenarios that might happen? Well, for me, one scenario is really a continuation of what's happening now. I mean, Putin, I don't think, for internal reasons, can afford to lose. He can't afford to lose face. So he has to get something out of this. And he he's already shown that he would use brutal tactics, you know, in Syria and in Chechnya. He prepared to uh, bombard Kiev, uh, really pummel uh, Ukrainians and hopefully uh, either kill the Ukrainian government or, or get them to surrender or flee. So he will go on until there's something like that. That's one scenario. Uh, assuming that he does take control of the Ukrainian government and put a puppet government in, then his problems uh, just begin. He can't run Ukraine. He can't govern it without the support of the population. Where is he going to get the civil administrators from if they're not going to cooperate? So he's going to get bogged down in Ukraine, rather like the Soviets did in Afghanistan. And it'll be a long-term drain on his military, demoralization of the military. If Western sanctions continue, which they should or get harder, then he will not be able to finance. The way to hit Russia uh, is not through protests. That won't change Putin's mind. It's the inability to pay the military and also to pay the pensions, to subsidize the 80 different regions of Russia. If, if he can't make money out of selling gas, then that will have to stop him. We're in for a period of attrition. The other scenario, seems to me, is a possible stalemate. Uh, he, he basically keeps control of the north coast of the Black Sea and tries to come to some kind of ceasefire. And there the difficulty is for the West. If it, makes, if it goes with the trap of, of trying to settle at that, then Putin has survived uh, and he'll come back again. And the dictatorship in Russia will continue. I'll try and offer a more positive... Uh... <laughs> Outcome for the situation, maybe in that, in that the attrition that, that Paul referred to there and the stalemate would be very costly for both sides economically. Inflation's already running close to 10% in the US and, you know, similar here. We can't afford a war and neither can the Russians now that the sanctions are biting. And so I would hope that the economic impact of this will squeeze both parties into some sort of accommodation and allow the Russians to keep face by keeping certain areas, Crimea, Donbass perhaps, and retreating. Because like Paul says, they can't possibly, even in, in their wildest dreams, think that they can run a, against a, a, an insurgent campaign for the long run in Ukraine. That's just not possible. No, no military is capable of doing that. The US, the Russians, nobody. Well, thank you both um, for your time this morning. It's been a really insightful conversation, both into the kind of the history and the context of where we find ourselves in the situation and what the possible outcomes are. So I'm sure we'll be following this very closely over the coming days, weeks and possibly months, even years ahead. Pleasure. Thanks, Glenn. Cheers. 
In the next part of our conversation, I want to look ahead to what the future might hold. I'm here with Dr. Patricia Shamai, Associate Head of Students at the School of Area Studies, History, Politics and Literature, and a Principal Lecturer in International Relations. Professor Peter Lee is Professor of Applied Ethics and Director of our Security and Risk Research theme. Dr. Frank Ledwidge is Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy, with a focus on contemporary conflict, law and military history. Thanks for joining us this morning. So, first question to Frank. Um, has the Russian army achieved Putin's strategic aims? And kind of what could this mean going forward in potential to other Soviet nations? If the Russian strategic goals were to remove Ukraine as a westward-facing country, then you could easily argue, and some people have, that those aims have been achieved. It is highly unlikely now that Ukraine will be allowed in NATO. They will not be joining the European Union. And if those were the Russian objectives, the presidency's objectives, then those sadly have been achieved. If the objective was to take some form of administrative control, which I think it was, then probably not. What we are looking at is, uh, is realistically over the next couple of weeks is horrendous onslaught on Kiev. There will be increasing calls for Western intervention. They'll probably be resisted. They may or may not succeed. And beyond that, either way, there may be a low-intensity war for quite so many years. It's also possible, and I think this is increasingly likely, to be some sort of negotiated settlement, which, of course, to come circle back to your first question, is likely to result in an achievement to some extent of what Putin has suggested his goals are, which are in his code, obviously it's ridiculous, but denazification, which means defanging of Ukraine as a unitary state and demilitarization doing the same to the Ukrainian armed forces. Second question concerning the Baltic states. The commander of Estonian armed forces in the immediate term said that we literally have no opponent over the border. And some people took that to mean that the Russian army wasn't what it was wanted to be, which perhaps you could come on to. Uh, that, that may be true, but that actually wasn't what it was saying. What he was saying was there was literally the motor rifle brigade, two motor rifle brigades that are over the border from Estonia have gone to fight in Ukraine, leaving probably skeleton staffs there. So in the immediate term, it's highly unlikely that we're going to see Russian soldiers moving into any of those Baltic states. But undoubtedly, in the longer term, in the event of a favourable outcome for Russia, then the Baltics will be feeling far more threatened. That is partly being offset by the forward deployment of some NATO troops, but actually a surprisingly small amount. There is a British battle group, which is just less than a thousand now there, and a half, sort of slack half dozen British aircraft and uh, a similar number of American and European aircraft based there. So NATO has a pretty minimal presence there, but that's going to increase. Picking up that point there, Frank, about kind of the UK's kind of contribution to this, is the UK kind of practically ready to engage in military conflict if it kind of escalated to that point, um, should it come to it? Or will it be more for its contribution through NATO? Well, over the last 20 years, the British Armed Forces have been eviscerated by displacement activities in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, which have been irrelevant to our national security and certainly even more irrelevant to NATO's security. And commensurately, our armed forces have been cut to a point where Britain's involvement would be as an enabler for more capable or more numerous, let's say, uh, NATO counterparts. After 20 years of 
pointless activity in the Middle East. The armed forces are in a pretty poor state. Right. Okay. Very sobering thought. And I just want to bring Peter in at this point. Um, Peter, you're the director of the security and risk theme at the university, but you have a particular interest into the politics and ethics of war. In your opinion, what makes this war, this conflict different to others? I've been interested in, in military interventions for, for many years now, and I've studied in great detail interventions from the 1990s to the present. And there have been larger military interventions. The Iraq War of 2003, for example, was on a, a much bigger scale. And American strategists and retired generals are, are busy telling the world how, how much more effective it was than this Russian assault in Ukraine. But there's also been many smaller interventions. There have been complex situations like Syria, where both uh, US, UK and the Russian uh, opponent joined in on different sides. So there, there's deeply complex and interrelated political reasons for, for what's happening in the Ukraine just now. In terms of what makes it different, I think it's the first time in recent memory that Russia has attempted something on such a large scale. They've previously uh, attacked uh, Georgia, they've annexed Crimea, but it's the scale of this offensive which is is distinct. And Russia has not, certainly over the last 20 years since the United Nations started talking about responsibility to protect civilians, Russia has not sought to intervene on those grounds and in fact, now would oppose any intervention on those grounds, especially if it's the one doing the intervening. So I think the the world has changed quite significantly in terms of the major powers and the expectations. And the US, UK, the world at large are trying to make sense of this, this Russian activity, which, as Frank has pointed out, has numerous uh, strategic aims. Yeah. And another point that kind of Frank talked about, which I want to pick up on here, is that the the different types of warfare, the use of technology in warfare. And you've written previously about how the military use of drones, and we're in an age of remote weapons. So how does the use of technology change our perception of war, both as citizens and, and military operatives? I think this Russian incursion, invasion, has demonstrated that actually there is a still a major place for what we might call old-fashioned war capability. Lots of tanks, lots of human beings with rifles, and very conventional aircraft and, and use of missiles. And I think one of the things that this war does highlight is that, that drones, which are they have been argued about being this great innovation for years. Drones having minimal impact. Ukraine has a number of Turkish drones, but actually their, their major use is probably uh, in artillery spotting or, or tank spotting for its own artillery. The small warheads, that they, the small missiles that they carry, they weigh about 50 pounds. They're not able to pierce heavy armor. Whereas if these small Ukrainian drones are used to help spot targets for shoulder-held stinger-type anti-tank rounds, then they do have some use, but, but actually it's more informational. It might be good for morale to be able to, to broadcast the filming of an attack on a tank. So there are some, some uses for them, but 
the only reason the Ukrainian drones are still in the air is because Russia has probably made a calculation that it's more worth its while to lose a few light vehicles and, and thin-skinned tanks than it is the cost and difficulty of moving its very capable ground-to-air defences to, to take a firmer control of the air. So that's probably just a calculation that Russia has made and continues to make since it's got many tanks and not so many high-quality ground-to-air uh, defence systems. That's interesting how you say about that use of old-school weaponry and kind of military technology being used. And, and Patricia, kind of at the other end of that scale, underlying the conflict so far is a threat that Putin made about of consequences you've never encountered in your history. So is he talking about nuclear weapons here? He is. It's a guarded threat to the world. It's an example of old-fashioned deterrence by punishment, mutually assured destruction. So he is known, Russia is known as a nuclear power. It has the most nuclear weapons of any other state in the world. And he's he's hinting there, not saying it outwardly, but he's hinting that if any states were to support Ukraine, then there would be consequences. I think it's also important to recognise that in that statement, he's also reminding the world that Russia also has a modernised military programme. So it may not even be using its nuclear capability, but it still has other forms of weaponry, advanced weaponry. So that is an example of Russia And it's been a very effective statement, Russia saying to the NATO member states and the rest of the world, if you intervene to support Ukraine, there will be consequences. And that has influenced the decision making, I think, towards Ukraine up to today. And so far, those decisions, as you say, they've decided not to engage in military conflict, but exercise a series of sanctions to undermine the Russian state. Can you take me through a couple of thinking behind this? What kind of events or actions could change this stance and and how things could escalate? Well, I think the policy of sanctions is uh, twofold. It's to diffuse the nuclear threat from Russia. And after Putin increased that threat, well, he didn't mention the word nuclear. He said that they would put, they would operationalize their deterrent forces. So he is reminding the world of Russia's nuclear capability. America, uh, the UK downplayed that threat didn't refer to it and said that it was a distraction. So they're trying to downplay the nuclear element and also to focus on a new type of deterrence, uh, focus on our interdependence with one another as a result of globalisation, our increasing financial interdependence and to try to influence the people within Russia to try to put pressure on Putin. So that's the basis for the policy of sanctions and the idea that the more states can be involved, the more numbers of states, the more that intimidates Russia to feel that there isn't global support for its actions in Ukraine. What could influence action really depends on how the conflict escalates. We've seen the use over the weekend of phosphorus weapons. These are not chemical weapons, but they are illegal amongst the civilian population and they have terrible burning effects. So you're seeing that Russia is adopting a strategy of terrorising the Ukrainian population and seeking to intimidate the population to make them back down. And the more and more that more and more actions that Russia does, the more it's trying to do that. Where the international community and in particular NATO may be forced to intervene is if we were to see the use of chemical weapons. Ukraine is a very different scenario to Syria, where chemical weapons had been used. 
it's a clearer case of who the actors are. You have uh, Russia and you have Ukraine. Whereas, as um, Peter's highlighted, in Syria, it was a more complex scenario with a wider range of actors. And I think if these chemical weapons are banned under the Chemical Weapons Convention, if they were to be used, then there would be clear evidence that Russia was associated with that use and a real motivation to act The other instance in which the world may become involved, and in particular NATO, is if Russia strikes any of the neighbouring states by accident or deliberately. And we've had statements on the news of, um, you know, one one foot goes into the Polish border or, or one thing happens and that could trigger a response from NATO. And once we see military attacks, those military attacks can't necessarily, rocket attacks can't necessarily be guaranteed to stay within a border if they're near a border. You could see accidental escalation, in which case NATO may be forced to act. But deterrence and NATO requires the political will of all members within NATO. And if all members are not unified to act, then we're seeing a situation that we're seeing now. So it really depends on how the war escalates. Okay, and just to bring bring you all in here on that point about that, what impacts are we seeing of this conflict on on the world stage and kind of global economy, global politics, and also at the other end on people around the world? And how will these extend as the war continues? I'd like to pick up on something Patricia said there about NATO unity, and we saw actually a wedge placed between at least two NATO powers with this palaver over the MiG twenty nines that Poland supposedly gifted to the US for onward transfer to Ukraine. I think Putin would like nothing more than to challenge NATO, as we saw with the cruise missile strike over the last few days in Western Ukraine, which was tiptoeing close to escalation. But I would think that that a, a more affirmative threat to NATO could well cause fissures, which would mean that NATO would not be united. Can I pick up on on how civilians are being affected by this conflict, both in Ukraine and and around the world as we watch on? One of the characteristics of Russian use of military force, and they've demonstrated this for decades, perhaps for centuries, is the operational, strategic, legal and ethical basis of everything Russia does is what I would call state-centric, the preservation of the state, especially the Russian state or those of its allies. The West, while we still sit in the, in the United Nations and we're all subject to the United Nations Charter, which is also a state-based international law, the rights of states to defend themselves, In the liberal West, there has been a much greater emphasis on human rights over the last few decades. And this this notion that people have the right to life, the right to to association and, and many other rights which we take for granted every day. And in 2013, 2014, when Russia was bombing a series of hospitals in Syria, Boris Johnson was making statements like Putin is violating the rights of Syrians. Russia bombed probably 10, at least 10, 10 Syrian hospitals. And when the UK and other Western powers criticized this attack on hospitals and the violation of human rights, the Russian response then by Putin and some of the other ministers was that Russia was obeying international law. There's an interesting gap there because 
when Russia talks about obeying international law, at that time it was referring to the UN Charter and the rights of states to defend themselves. And it was defending an ally. And frankly, not in the least concerned for international humanitarian law, which forbids the attacking of hospitals. And, and certainly not interested in international human rights law, which is about preserving the rights of individuals in outside um, war zones or even in war zones under, under certain conditions. So Russia plays very much to its state focus. And as a result, when, when we hear calls for um, interventions to save the Ukrainian civilians, the UN doctrine of responsibility to protect is and always has been an abject failure and will not work because Russia will veto it. I think we see there this desperate situation where we feel we want to do something and yet if military force was used to try and protect Russian civilians, there's no reasonable possibility of success, however you want to define that. The proportionate use of force would be violated. We would end up potentially up towards a nuclear exchange. So there are no practical means of intervening forcefully to protect Ukrainian civilians. So we civilians around the rest of the world have to watch some very ugly things and feel very powerless about it. I would just like to chime in and just sort of um, add a a slightly more positive note that we have seen that there's been a massive outpouring of support and the sanctions that we've seen have been very effective. What, what we're seeing is we're seeing sort of a global response with sanctions, but we're also seeing individual businesses imposing sanctions and people in their own way boycotting certain goods, etc. So I think you're seeing a much greater unity than we've ever seen before between people and almost like a grassroots reaction, which itself has a knock-on effect on the government. A huge amount of generosity from people towards Ukrainian refugees and towards the situation. And I think this is a really good example of sort of people power. We're seeing the use of the internet an awful lot more. Twitter is becoming a major sort of source of information. Zelensky is using Twitter extremely effectively. His wife is using Instagram. And we're seeing a very different reaction to conflict than the conflict we've seen in the past, which has been focused on states and a sort of distanced military environment. We're seeing conflict being brought right home right in front of us and it can't be hidden and I'm hoping that that has a positive impact on trying to provoke some kind of change and some kind of action in the region. It's nice to end on a form of positive in such a harrowing situation hopefully as you say that people power people coming together people around the world hopefully can inflict that change that is much needed to help draw an end to this conflict sooner rather than later so uh, yeah thank you Peter, Patricia and Frank. Hopefully this has helped you gain some understanding into why this conflict has escalated to this point and given insight into the narratives, ideologies and strategies at play. Nobody knows what decisions and events the coming months will hold, but if you'd like to follow any of the work and research of the academics featured in this episode, you can find them on our website, port.ac.uk. You can share this episode using the hashtag LifeSolved and follow us on your podcast app for more episodes like this. We'll be back next time as we return to our research themes. We'll hear how digital technology is providing a gateway to domestic abuse and looking at ideas tackling this growing problem. 
Within coercive and controlling environments, you get situations where perpetrators will have either forced, you know, through threats, passwords out of their partners, or even emotionally manipulated it. I'm Glenn Harris, and thank you for listening to this podcast from the University of Portsmouth.